Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. It's time for school, Rock School, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. But then there is this lingering idea that in some way, Courtney Love is responsible for his death. That's a theory. I mean, look, I explored that. I honestly don't believe it. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. Tammy is not with us. Why? Because we're into June. If you listen to the Rock School Show, you know we take a month every summer and we do nothing but interviews. This is interview four of four that we are doing. We're going to be talking today with Keith Elliott Greenberg. He's the author of multiple books, and you may have read him before, but we're going to talk to him about his brand new book titled, Where Are You Going With That Gun in Your Hand? The True Crime Blotter of Rock and Roll. It's 21 small vignettes about famous and not so famous deaths in the world of rock and roll. It is my opinion when you read a book, if that book challenges everything you believed you knew about whatever story the book is talking about, I believe the book is doing its point. It's doing what it should do. And all over these 21 vignettes of 21 different deaths in rock and roll, my belief system was constantly challenged. Now, today on the show, we're only going to talk about seven of these vignettes which means there's 14 more. So if while you're listening to the show, you hear something that simply goes against what you have always believed, then you need to pick up the book, Where Are You Going With That Gun In Your Hand? by Keith Elliott Greenberg. He was nice enough to sit and talk with us for an hour, and so let's listen to it for an hour today. Keith Elliott Greenberg on Rock School. On the phone with me, Keith Elliott Greenberg, the author of a new book, Where Are You Going With That Gun In Your Hand? Of course, a takeoff on Jimi Hendrix's Hey Joe. Keith, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me on your show. I I gotta tell you, let me, let me give you the lowdown of how this book affected me. This is 21 vignettes about very sad moments in rock and roll, deaths of an icon. Here's what I found interesting about the book. Everybody has these preconceived notions about what they think in terms of how Kurt Cobain died or Marvin Gaye died or what have you. And your book challenged a whole lot of those preconceived, this is how it happened. When, when you were researching this book, did you find that yourself? Yes, that was actually the goal. I was trying to challenge myself because we all know rock and roll folklore. And, you know, if it involves rock and roll, it's folklore because stories change by the time rock stars wake up the next morning. 
And I was certainly locked into certain views of how things occurred. I was pretty certain I knew how people died. And I thought, let me examine this and let me, you know, challenge these notions that I've been carrying around and maybe in the course of doing that, open some minds and entertain people in the process. When you were writing it, I just remembered, you know, finishing one chapter, you know, on, on uh, let's say, uh, Brian Jones, and then you turn the page and it's another one and it's another one. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't want to stop reading, but it was just another punch in the gut. Did you find that? Well, yes. And I was telling a friend about this yesterday. It was in, that made it kind of an easy book to research because I could research each story in a vacuum. And I could say, okay, I am now going to research the Phil Spector murder. And I could just focus on that story alone. When I pursued the story about the death of Jam Master Jay, for instance, I said, well, I live in New York. This occurred in New York. I'm going to get on the subway, and I'm going to go to the place where he died. And for the next week or so, I could just live that story. And then it was... In an odd way pleasurable to write about this because I could feel that story so strongly. It It is interesting about that because the way the book is set up, you can, um, you can read seven or eight pages and then you can walk away and come back and come back and go away and come back. So it, it, it's well written in that, in that genre because I could enjoy myself for half an hour, walk away, and then come back to something fresh each time. Were you looking for that? Um, yeah, that was, that was kind of the goal. I also thought this is the kind of book where you can put it down if you have to. If it's a little too much for you, put it down for a couple of days. Maybe you have an airplane trip coming up and then pick it up again. And, you know, I thought, or you could read it through. You could read it through, you know, like, like you're powering through a TV series on Netflix. I put it down once. I did the whole thing in two days. I thought it was great. So... Let me just ask you the ones, because there's 21 vignettes, but a few of them really jumped out and bit me. Tell me, Keith, who killed Nancy Spungen? Well, that I don't know. There's a lot of theories about that, and I want to make something clear. Howie Pyro, who was my the main source, grew up down the block from me. <laughs> I know him a long time. I know him since I'm about five years old. And huh. he, he was there with Sid right when Sid died. He was there through the whole thing. And he's always been very upfront with me about the type of guy he is, about the challenges he's encountered in his life. And he is 100% convinced that Sid was such a disdainful person in the eyes of the NYPD. And that uh, so many people would pass through that room where him and Nancy Spungen were staying, that it could have been anybody. And yet, if you wanted to close a case, he was the perfect guy to blame because he was a junkie. He was despised by the mainstream. And, you know, he was so vulnerable at that point that he was ready to confess to anything. Now, that's what Howie says. I certainly see his point, but my mind is open. 
You're right. It's so easy to just simply say Sid was in a heroin haze and that's who drove the, the, the butcher knife through Nancy Spungen. But who is this Rocket's Red Glare and Michael that you bring up? Well, Rocket's Red Glare, who's no longer with us, uh, he was a guy, I was actually a fan of his. Uh, he was in a couple of the early Jim Jarmusch movies, and I thought he was a really memorable actor. Um, and I would see him walking around the East Village from time to time. He had confessed to somebody that he was the killer. From what I understand, he was just bragging that he was not the killer. Mm-hmm. In terms of Michael, it he sounds like he could have been the killer, but how come we don't know Michael's last name? I'm always a little cynical when we only know somebody's name. I think there was the theory that the Son of Sam case that he was assisted by a mysterious man named Raul. How come we never discovered Raul's last name? Right. So that always, you know, so so that always has me a little bit curious. But who knows? Maybe somebody will read the book and be able to elaborate a bit more. Maybe Michael, if he's still among us, will come forward and confess. Who do you think did it? Now, you did all this research. I just read your book. Who do you think um, did it? I think it could be a number of scenarios. Yeah. You know, obviously, Sid and Nancy had an extremely volatile relationship. He could have done it. She could have done it to herself. What? Or it could have been, you know, because these were people who would self-flagellate all the time. They cut themselves up. She could have cut herself for attention and ended up killing herself. I don't think that was beyond her. I also think it could have been somebody passing through the room who may have grabbed their money, may have grabbed their drugs, may have been confronted by her, and may have stabbed her and just cut out, and nobody took the time to really figure it out. Yeah. If you've been to the Chelsea, you can see that it's room after room after room after room. There were a lot of people moving around in that area. Right, and that was the whole allure of that scene. Now, it's interesting, another friend of mine, again, purely coincidentally, uh, who attended college with me at the time, he did a story for the college newspaper, and he came to court, and he uh, interviewed one of the NYPD sergeants, and he said that, uh, the, the sergeant said, Sid Vicious never admitted to the crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that th- the story that he confessed was false. So that was back at the time. And now Larry Jaffe's story remained hidden, really, because it, it appeared in a small Connecticut magazine that no one really read until The Guardian reprinted his story in 2013.
I got one more that I want you to put to bed. Who killed Biggie and Tupac? Well, that is... Um... <laughs> <laughs> that's an hour-long conversation. There you go. Um, you know, certainly there was a lot of friction between uh, the various gang factions uh, and drug factions associated with rap music at the time. But now, they liked not, each other. I think they initially liked each other, and then the relationship degenerated. I don't know if that uh, relationship degenerated because they were posturing uh, to create an East Coast, West Coast war. I don't know if they began to believe some of the, the disses they included in their songs. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if one was retribution for the other, but there was a lot of wild gunplay going on. And this was a community, just like with Jam Master Jay, this is a community, I'm talking about the inner city black community and the rap community that didn't cooperate with authorities. Right. So certainly there are people who know what happened. You know, if you... We are among the hip-hop community, there are people who will tell you unequivocally they know what occurred. But at a certain stage, the investigation stopped. And I do think that there's still, to this day, a bit of an attitude among law enforcement that, hey, well, they're rappers, they shoot each other, you know, why, why bother any more than we have? And that's, that's a shame because you have, you know, two grieving mothers along with children who were left behind not knowing the definitive answer about what happened to their respective fathers and loved ones. Right. I felt the same way about it. They're, they're gone. They're done. Hello, they're, did I lose you? Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, for I, a moment, I thought I lost you. Yeah. No, that's okay. I felt the same way about it. They're, uh, I felt that the police were, they're gone. We don't have to worry about them anymore. Move along. Right, right. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and, you know, and that's, that's true. Now, look, you could say, well, the people in the hip-hop community, they, some of them, not all of them, but the ones who portrayed themselves as gangsters, uh, maybe they invited, uh, you know, sometimes you confuse your image with who you really are as a person. And, you know, we could go back to Sid Vicious and say that as well. You know, Howie Pyro describes how Sid Vicious, when you were alone with him, was just a regular, funny, goofy kid. And, you know, um, Biggie Smalls, he he uh, worked at a Jewish day camp when he was a kid during the summertime. His mother was a beloved teacher over there, and he yeah. was, you know, a really bright kid and a really funny kid and a lovable, caring kid. And then he had to become this rapper, and I don't know how much of that was really him as a human being. Yeah. That's a question. Are you the human being or are you the persona once you become famous? And I'm not sure that people who are famous can even figure that out yeah. because the people around you convince you that you are that persona. And the only reason you're getting some of these things is because people believe in that persona. And so it's pretty hard to come out of that and say, well, I'm really Christopher Wallace when everyone is treating you like the notorious B.I.G. Yeah, it's it has to get on your... 
has to get on your nerves, that, that concept of, well, I just wanted two minutes of his time. Yeah, well, you were the 100th person today that just wanted two minutes of his time. It, it, it has to be difficult to deal with. Oh. Allow me to lace these lyrical dishes in your bushes. Uh, Who rock grooves and make moves with all the mommies? The, the back, back of the club, club. sipping my wet is where you find me. What? The back of the club, macking holes, my crew's behind me. Uh, Mad question asking, blunt passing, music lasting the place. Cause I see some ladies tonight that should be having my baby. Baby. Uh, check it out. Now, for, for that. Uh, puff Daddy. Biggie Smalls, Junior Mafia, represent baby, baby. Uh. Time to take our first break here on the Rock School Radio Network. We'll be back in one minute to talk with Keith Elliott Greenberg more about his book, Where You Going With That Gun In Your Hand, here on Rock School. I got one more here that I'm going to argue with you on. Sure. I I don't believe Phil Spector killed Lana Clarkson. I I mean I read oh, all no, of Okay, now now I need to ask you okay. why. Real simple. Phil Spector would it would have no trouble firing off a gun he never pointed it at. He shot it in the, the to the to the roof with John Lennon and would walk around being a tough guy. The idea that he simply took Lana Clarkson home, put a gun in her mouth, and shot it, to me, doesn't make any sense. I do believe that he, as sick as he was, and he was weird, thought it would be funny to tell her to pretend to sort of put the gun in her mouth and play around, and I think it was an accident, and she did it to herself. I mean, look, that's that's entirely possible. I mean, you know, the, in, the, in the Felix Papillardi story, we have, I believe it's Leslie West uh, pointing out, like, you know, you play with guns and stuff happens. And I think Ringo said that about Phil Spector as well. You know, I mean, if you don't want to be accused of murder, don't bring a, a woman home and wave a loaded gun around her. Right. Whether whether she accidentally did it, because I don't think she committed suicide, and 
even to discuss this possibility makes me think about her family, and I don't want to add to their pain to imply that she was in any way responsible for her own death. You know, don't, you know, if you're going to have some erotic love play, keep a loaded gun out of it. You're prob- probably both people are better off. Probably, but you, as your chapter pointed out quite well, this is a person that was so in charge of his life and so believing in his own myth that even when the police had guns pointed at him, he simply shrugged when they told him to do things. Yeah, yeah, and again, he was a, when you're famous, you can get away with that. That you know, you can have the police come and you can boss them around. And I'm sure he had spent decades telling the police, "Hey, hey, 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 hey! I'll I'll tell you when we're going to do this or we're going to do that." Hmm. Yeah, that I'm telling you, that was I think that's the third vignette in the book, and that's the mm-hmm. one that really hit me right off the bat. And I thought I gotta talk to this guy about this here. Now you mentioned. Mountains Felix Papillardi. I got to be honest with you. I've been doing this show for 12 years, and Felix, I think, has come on my radar once or twice. Explain to the audience who this guy is. I mean, Felix Papillardi, it was... uh You've heard his music. It's funny. People, I, I think somebody reviewed the book and they said, oh, an obscure musician like Felix Papillardi. He's not that obscure if you listen to his music. He was the bassist and the vocalist on Mountain's hit Mississippi Queen. You have heard Felix Papillardi's music over and over again. So what happened? Why did a man like that, why was a man like that killed? How is a man like that killed? Once again, you have a loaded gun. Mm. You know, you, you, you come home, apparently, even though him and his wife allegedly had a, a, a agreed to an open marriage, there was likely some jealousy involved. I don't believe he was giving his wife gun training, uh, you know, at five in the morning or whenever the murder took place, but a loaded gun was in the room and things escalated. Maybe if, if there wasn't a loaded gun there, his wife may have thrown a remote control at him and that would have been the end. Of it, except they'd have to call a Spectrum or Fios for another remote control to remedy that situation. I'm going to talk to you now about the deepest sigh, in my opinion, and that's the death of Mia Zapata. Tell us who she is. That, that's a, that, that is one of the saddest stories. I mean, look, there's a lot of sadness in the book. But she was on the, she was a, uh, I call her a Seattle 
punk siren, hmm. Nia Zapata, um, really well respected in Seattle, respected by all those people in the grunge scene. But she did her own thing, really the personification of the angry girl, a G-R-R-L, of that era in the 90s, and was right on the cusp of becoming an international star. And she was murdered one night walking through Seattle. People, there were all these theories that somehow it had to do with her music. But as we came to find out, it was uh, a crime of opportunity. She was uh, sexually assaulted and killed by, you know, a creature of the night. And it had nothing to do with her music. And in Seattle, there were people who still invoke her name with reverence. But sadly, in the rest of the world, people have forgotten who she is. And they would have, another six months or a year, everyone would have known who she was. Yeah. You suggested that it could either be a prostitute deal gone wrong or in some way a ritual thing. Can you explain both of those? Well, I'm not going to say, you know, that was a theory that it may have been a, a you know a prostitution deal gone wrong i do not believe that you know she was uh, out there selling her body on the streets i think that that's what the police initially thought because they thought that um okay young attractive woman walking around in the middle of the night uh you know she's either in the midst of a drug deal or she had a fight with a john you know, these were nocturnal people, and she ended up being killed at night. It was not a prostitution deal gone wrong. Much like there wasn't, I do not believe there was any ritual that, that, that ended up, uh, you know, causing her death. She was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Do you think that the, the posing, because that's what a lot of people are suggesting, she was posed a certain way? Yes, she was posed, but I don't think she was a participant in that. Yes, she was posed a certain way, but this may be just this guy's demented, uh, you know, that that caused some demented satisfaction in the person who, you know, murdered her. Okay, again, you can hear. I mean, this book had an effect on me, man. If you're, I mean, if you're looking to see if this thing worked, it did, Keith. It had a wicked effect. You, you were talking about the Seattle scene, so let's go to Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. Here's, the, here's the back and forth. Kurt had had enough. He had stomach problems. And one day he simply said he'd had enough and he went to the upstairs of the secondary building, put a shotgun in his mouth, and that was it. 
But then there is this lingering idea that in some way Courtney Love is responsible for his death. That's a theory. I mean, look, I explored that. I honestly don't believe it. Um, you know, I think that in the just like Yoko was so detested by Beatles fans because she was uh, blamed for breaking up the Beatles. Courtney Love was hated by certain factions of Nirvana fans because they felt she had too great a hold over Kurt Cobain. Maybe there were certain people who felt this love for Kurt Cobain themselves and they wanted him all to themselves and didn't want her very prominent presence clouding their fantasies about Kurt Cobain. But Kurt Cobain comes from a family with a, a history of suicide, and uh, he had a very, very hard time with fame, as you know, has been well chronicled. And I do, I do think that he was unable to handle it. One of my favorite stories about him was while they were touring on the Nevermind LP, he had a bad pair of shoes that were all torn up, and I remember his manager came to him and said, you know, you have $3 million in the bank, young man. Why don't you go buy a new pair of shoes? And he said, eh, these are fine. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? That wasn't what mattered to him. Yeah. And I think he would have he would have been happy having a scuffed up pair of shoes. You know, I don't think he would, look, he wanted his music to be recognized because he was an artist, but all of that rock star stuff that came with it you know, was overwhelming to him, particularly somebody who was so emotionally frail. Because along with the adulation comes criticism. And now you're being subjected to criticism. And even the adulation smacks of something inauthentic. Do they really care about you? Or as we discussed before, your persona. And this isn't even a persona that he worked too hard to manufacture. And so I could see where somebody who's predisposed to suicide may have said, all right, time to end it all. Yeah, I, I always got the feeling from him that he wrote his songs for himself. If you liked them, great. If you didn't, somehow I'll be fine. I always got that and from that's, him. Yeah, and that's why his death is so tragic, because he operated on that premise. He wrote his songs for himself, and in many ways he did his own thing. There were other choices he could have made. His mind was also clouded by his drug usage. But somebody like him could have dropped out of contact for a while, gone somewhere, done his art, and made some music in privacy. But I guess he was on this you know, spinning wheel, and he didn't see a way out of it. Do you believe there really is a 27 Club? He's part of that club, and I know a lot of people have died, but see, it's been it's been linked to Robert Johnson and all those. Do you believe there's a 27 Club? I don't think there's a... Tw I think it's just a very tragic coincidence. Huh. Huh. Well, let's take that. As they say, if you don't... If you don't learn your history. I mean, I mean, who, I mean, then again, maybe there are people who they become rock stars and they're obsessed with that number 27. 
It's like, how long am I going to live? Will I be dead by the time I'm 27? And maybe it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you engage in more destructive behavior when you're that age because you're thinking, oh, well, I guess I'm going to be the next member of the 27 Club. You know, uh, and that, that's entirely possible. Hmm. As they say, if you don't learn history, you're doomed to repeat it. Kurt Cobain is a repeat of, in my mind, at least Jim Morrison. There was a woman to blame. And so Jim didn't just, you know, take drugs and slip under the water. This woman killed him. You believe that? Right. I don't believe she killed him. I, you know, I do think there may be something to the theory that he was in a club and may have OD'd in the club and his body may well have been moved to the bathtub. Oh. Maybe uh, Pam, his you know, common-law wife, covered that up uh, because she you know, was a part of this whole heroin scene. But I don't believe Pam was involved in putting him under the water, not by any means. Who would have done that? I don't think anyone drowned him. I think what happened was he may have OD'd and he may have been, his body may have been moved into an apartment, his apartment, so it just seemed like he died in the tub. Hmm. To what end? Realize, realize, realize this was before there was video of, of your every movement. Yeah. If, if, you know, in this day and age, that would have been impossible. Come on, come on, come on, now touch Time for the second break here on Rock School. We're talking with Keith Elliott Greenberg, the author of a brand new book called Where Are You Going With That Gun In Your Hand? The True Crime Blotter of Rock and Roll. Got to take a minute, allow our affiliates to play their commercials, and then we'll be back and wrap up speaking with Keith Elliott Greenberg here on the Rock School Radio Show. Keith, I don't want to keep, you know, knocking it out because people need to read the book. But I'm going to throw one more at you and then I'll stop because that means I have I have talked about 7, that means there's 14 left in the book. 
Marvin Gaye. This oh, is wow, what a tragedy that was. But this is another one of those things where I was positive I knew the story until I read your book. I thought the the, the father was a a pastor. He was a good guy. Something went wrong, and he shot him. But right. you say there's much more to it than that. Right, and I had always thought that, too. It's interesting you say that, because I thought his father was a pastor, and everyone knew that, you know, Marvin Gaye was a bit emotionally unstable, and he also had substance abuse issues. But there was this history of abuse uh, that, that came from his father, and Marvin Gaye had cracked up a bit, and he was relegated to living at home, and the father apparently was badgering Marvin Gaye's mother, not physically, but verbally. And Marvin Gaye had had enough. He physically attacked his father, but this is a father who had beat him much of his life and was very verbally abusive to his mother. And in self-defense, the father shot him. But if you look at the whole picture, Marvin Gaye had good reason to erupt like that. Marvin Gaye Sr., you mean? Yes. Hmm. No, Marvin Gaye, no, Marvin Gaye Jr. had um, good reason to erupt at his father because he was tired of hearing his father browbeat his mother. That doesn't mean he should have beaten his father up, but realized that was the language of violence that they used in that home. Hmm. And he had been the victim of his father's rages. And now that Marvin Gaye was an adult, and he still saw his father behaving like this, he said, I'm just going to beat his ass for treating my mother like this and treating me like this my entire life. Should Marvin Gaye Sr. have gotten off for that, or do we all just believe the myth? Should he have gotten off? That's a good question. I mean... In terms of, you know, if, if you're looking at long-term justice and the way Marvin Gaye Sr. treated his family, you could argue that he had it coming. <laughs> at the same time, did he need to shoot his son? Well, his son was a younger guy, maybe. You know, if you're a defense lawyer, you could say he certainly felt endangered. I believe that the mother probably could have broken that up, but I can also see Marvin Gaye Sr.'s legal position where my, you know, my younger son was beating me, and I had no choice but to fire in self-defense. Once again, why was there a loaded gun in the house? Marvin Gaye Jr. had bought his father a gun for some bizarre reason. You suggested, or somebody you quoted suggested, that Marvin Gaye was looking for a way to commit suicide. Maybe it was death by cop, death by father, death by whomever held the gun. And if, and if he was looking to commit suicide, how perfect that the person who would be blamed is the father he despised.
you're gonna do another book. I, I don't want to keep going on with your book because I want people to buy it and read it. I, I mean, do you have Thank any you. more lined up? Sure, I'm always I'm always pitching stories. I've written numerous books. I've written numerous true crime books. I've written several music books. I've also written a number of books about professional wrestling, which is a, another conversation we can have on another day. So yes, I'm always working on something on the side. Were there any deaths that you worked on, but it didn't make the book? Not really, not really. I read through a lot of material, but by the time I decided I'm going to devote a chapter to this, I was pre- I, I was committed to see that chapter through. Mm-hmm. But I, I got to tell you, again, I left 14 that people will be able to read, and the ones that we talked about, it goes into far more depth. You mentioned the Jam Master J one. And I don't want to give much away, but the, what I took away from that chapter was, look, everybody knows who did it. They just don't want to say. Yes, and, and, and that would be true with Tupac and Biggie as well. Yeah. The book is titled, Where Are You Going With That Gun In Your Hand? The True Crime Blotter of Rock and Roll by Keith Elliott Greenberg. I can't tell you how happy I am to, that you took an hour and spoke to me. This was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful time for me, too, and thank you so much for saying such positive things about the book. Well, it deserved it. It deserved everyone. Keith, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. Sucker MCs should call me sire. To burn my kingdom, you must choose fire. I won't stop rocking till I retire. Now we rock up. So on time and rhymes connect. Got the right to vote and we'll elect. And other rappers can't stand us, but give us respect.